That was an underwhelming welcome, I'm just going to say. If you're going to do it, do it, you know. <laughs> it's too late. It's too late. No, that's false. Too late. It's too late. Nice try. <laughs> uh, welcome. I'm Chris, one of the pastors here at Riverside. I've not met you. Love to uh, greet you from a safe distance. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn them to Mark 10. You can bookmark uh, Matthew 18, because we're going to go to both of those places. Um, Mark 10, verse 13. I'm going to read three verses, then we'll pray, then we'll get into it. And they were bringing children to him, him being Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. You don't see Jesus being indignant very often in the New Testament. A few times, and this is one of them. And he said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray. Lord, in our day, um, we may have forgotten what it feels like to have someone lay their hands on us and bless us. Father, I ask that today, through the power of your Holy Spirit, our souls would feel you coming near to us and laying your hands on us and blessing us. Jesus. So scripture tells us, is your heart for mankind. When we deserve the opposite, you take us up in your arms, you lay your hands on us and you bless us. There's no one like you. There's no one like you. Let me pray these things. Amen. Jesus often made very definitive, black and white, in or out, confrontational statements in his ministry. Sentences and claims and statements that are comprehensive in nature. If then, categorical statements. Categorical, in other words, like Kant's philosophy, categorical imperative, for, true for all people in all places, without exception, at all times. That's what I mean by when I say categorical statements like this. John 3, 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one, love the other, or be devoted to one, despise the other. You can't serve. You cannot serve. God and money, very definitive statement, very clear, in or out, black or white. That's why a lot of people don't like Jesus, right? Luke 14, or Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Or if you don't forgive others, my father will not forgive you. Matthew 6, 15, or, so let's keep going. Matthew 5.20, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, chill out, Jesus. Like, I thought you were, like, inclusive and loved everybody, right? When we hear such definitive statements of total and universal and unflinching truth, right? Our tendency today, us who live in shades of gray and exceptions, and I define my own truth, thank you very much, our tendency, even amongst Bible-believing, church-going Christians, is when we find statements like this, we immediately go in PR mode for Jesus and say, well, he didn't really mean that. Calm, calm. We say, of course, Jesus is tolerant and inclusive. And this is clearly hyperbolic language. And he's just trying to make a point because the accusation is it's things like this that make Christianity so mind-numbingly narrow. How can you say that? It's exclusive and it's dogmatic and it's arrogant. You Christians are arrogant. You think, you, I mean, we're not we're talking. So most people come to statements like this, come to hard passages in scripture and they say, well, this is hyperbolic. This is overstatement. He's not really, well, maybe, I, mean, may, I don't know. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I got the mic. That doesn't mean I know, I mean, I don't know, maybe. Or maybe these statements that Jesus repetitively makes in his ministry <laughs> is like me repetitively telling my kids, if you touch the stove, it will burn you. What's that? What's that? What is that? What's that? If you touch the stove, you will get burned. What is that? If I say to my kids, do not stick the fork in the outlets. What is that? What am I saying? I'll say it this way. Whosoever sticks a fork in an outlet shall receive his due shock. <laughs> truly, truly, I say unto you, you may be shocked unto death. <laughs> or, <laughs> I'm glad you're enjoying this. Um, whosoever tries to breatheth underwatereth shall dieth. Now, I'm having fun, right? Okay, sure. But what is that? Okay, I am simply trying to instruct my children in the way of reality. I'm saying this is what reality is like, okay? This is the boundaries of reality. These are the thresholds of life. If you cross that threshold, you will die. I am acting out of a deep, sometimes I want safety and security and happiness so bad for my kids it hurts. And I'm acting out of this deep longing I have in my heart that I can't escape for my kids to flourish. I want them to live. I wanted you to live, buddy. Don't play hide and seek with grizzly bears. Don't do that. Don't play with razor blades, man. No, you can't play with, I mean, bud, you can't try to dry your hair while you're in the bath. When you get out of the bath, then you can dry your hair. What am I doing? No modern person would ever argue that what I am doing in that moment is narrow-minded, arrogant, overbearing, or bigotry, right? No one would argue that, right? I mean, you're such a narrow-minded parent, Chris. He just wants to play hide-and-seek with the grizzly. I mean, how hard could it be, right? When that game ends, like, you're not it, you know? The game is over, right? He just wants to dry his hair in the bathtub. You need to broaden your horizons, 
as a parent, you know? Like one game, it's not gonna hurt him, right? There's Chris with his antiquated, racist, misogynist religion, won't let his kids play with grizzly bears. I just, anyone see that spit? That was a massive amount, massive amount, just came out of my mouth. Chris needs to realize that not everyone believes that, you know? No, we all know that if you play hide and seek with the grizzly bear, when he finds you, it's not your turn, the game's over. That is not being dogmatic, is it? Is it? You want, you want, we won't chat? Is this being narrow-minded? No. What I am doing is loving my kids with the type of godly, fatherly, ferocious love that God has mandated me to do. I'm preserving their life. I'm saying if you want happiness and joy, you need to listen to me. I've been around the block a bit, buddy. It's me protecting and longing for my kids to experience peace and security and flourishing, right? If, look at me, if Jesus, if Jesus is the author of reality, if you accept that premise, maybe you don't, I don't know, sitting in a church, that's fine, I don't care. If you believe Jesus is the author of reality, then it then makes sense to then believe that he and he alone knows the structures and boundaries of reality. Therefore, he and he alone can instruct us in things that make for our life and things that make for our death. If it's true. Maybe, I mean, you can figure it out yourself. But if Jesus is the author of reality, then he, he, he alone can tell us this is how you flourish. So when we come to statements like this, right, and I believe, because I'm a Christian, <laughs> I believe that all of those statements that we just said have eternal significance for you. Today we're going to sit with one of them, explore, meditate on together. One of them we're going we're gonna to wrestle with today, which is what he said in, in Mark and Matthew 18. He says, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What can he mean? When we, read, when we read Mark 10, Jesus is welcoming children, blessing them, disciples saying, get out of here, right? Jesus is an important adult with important adult things, didn't have time for kids, and Jesus seems to have a very different value system than his disciples, so much so that he was indignant, affronted, angry, right, that they would not let children come to him. Before he wrestle with what his statement says to us, Right, we should stop and first consider what this statement says about God. If, if there's another if then for us, if Jesus is God incarnate and he is showing us, if, if in Jesus you are staring at the face of God, right, then he's showing us something about the character and nature of God in this statement and everything he does, right? But in this one in particular, he is welcoming and valuing and blessing others. Who would, or those that others would say are insignificant, unimportant, and unable. So that's, that's what God is like if the whole thing's true. If the whole thing's true, God is a God who welcomes, values, and blesses people who others have dismissed as insignificant, unimportant, and unable, you know, unaffected just impotent. 
God is the kind of God that blesses welcomes. Even socialist, I'm sorry, secular sociologist. <laughs> Got that one. Those are different. Yes, those are very different. Even <laughs> secular sociologists say any society can be morally weighed by how they treat very young people and very old people. Right? Because those two groups often have the least to offer back. So what was it about Jesus that children felt welcome in his arms? I know y'all. Not all y'all children feel welcome in your arms, right? <laughs> right? And here is Jesus, the Lion of Judah, before whom mountains bow, before whom devils shriek in horror. Right, Jesus, who without hesitation confronted and exposed the hypocrisy of those in power. Right? The New Testament Pharisees and Sadducees are like the mafia, right? Confronts them, exposes them in the public square. Jesus, right? The man who calls them out in public, who the man who confounded the rulers of the Romans, right? And yet there's something about this man, some softness and openness, perhaps some childlikeness even in himself, that children felt comfortable in his arms. That alone might be the paradigm shift for some of us today about who is God and what is he like, right? That he values and blesses those whom you do not value and do not think deserve blessing, right? And Jesus is saying something to us today. When this is what I really want to sit with, okay? What is it? What was it then? What is it now? about children that Jesus was trying to point out that if you don't receive the kingdom like that, you won't get in. What exactly was he talking about? If you don't turn and become like a child, you will not get in the kingdom. This is very important for us to understand, isn't it? So what does he, let's talk about this first. What does he not mean by this statement, all right? Well, I have three kids, okay? And the other day, I saw my son scream bloody murder and slap a Lego out of my daughter's hand, screaming because he wanted that particular piece, right? Like 5,000 Legos sprawled on the floor behind him, and he wants that one piece, right? One time, one of my kids who will rename, 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 remain, on fire today, remain nameless. I told them, <laughs> I told them, no. You cannot cover yourself completely all over your body with marker. So they ran, screaming into the room, slammed the door, and started throwing objects against the wall, right? Like, some, if you're a parent, you do have these moments of, like, actual fear, you know? They're like, what? That's when you're like, babe, kids need you, you know? I'm tapping out. Like, sometimes I feel like, you know, in, like, uh, uh, Braveheart, when Mel Gibbons is like, hold, you know? Sometimes that's like me and my wife and my kids on the other side, you know, we're like, hold, like trying to not break eye contact, prove that like you're in charge, you know, right? <laughs> Surely Jesus doesn't mean unless you pitch a fit like a wild baboon, <laughs> when you don't get your way, you won't get in the kingdom. No, because there's a difference between childlikeness and childishness, right? So, so he's not saying be short-sighted <laughs> and impatient, you know, he's not saying pout, Children pout, you know. Children, children can easily be lost in so much self-pity 
they try to emotionally manipulate through crocodile tears. You know what I'm talking about? Like when they look up to you and the big eyes and the tear, and you're like, no. And then like, okay, never mind. You know, I'm not crying anyway. You know? <laughs> Children are easily distracted, aren't they? Look. <laughs> right? Gullible. Now, this is one we need to sit with for a second, because a lot of people think when Jesus said, if you don't become like a child, they think gullible. In other words, if you don't believe everything everyone says or everything Jesus says or everything the Bible says, then, you know, you're not, you know, whatever, you know. Children believe things easily. When, when I was a kid, teenager, actually, my grandma told me that if I popped my zits, it would go into my brain. And I was, I was genuinely terrified. Uh, of it for a while. And like, the funny thing is, when I think about it, and I look back, I was like, she had this funny smile on her face that I didn't quite understand. I didn't get it, though. Um, I believed her. Uh, Jesus does not mean be gullible, y'all. Uh, we are told to be as wise as serpents in other places. We're told to test the spirits. Jesus doesn't mean be immature and believe everything that you hear, right? Maturity always better than immaturity, always, right? Like I look back at my like late teens, early 20s, and I was it, like, I'm surprised I'm alive still, right? He's not saying be immature, right? So what does he mean? The, the word in the Greek can be baby. So, so small baby, like small mom, no, little baby, right? Like babe wrapped in clothes, same word, right? Jesus being born, babe, right? Same word can be child, young child, right? It's used the same way. That word is used in the New Testament for both things. So what is it about kids, young children, or even babies, infants, that Jesus was trying to point out to us that if we don't become like that, you won't get in the kingdom? What was it, right, that he wants us old, crusty adults to see? Well, at least we can conclude this. We know this. What he is pointing out to us is something that the mere process of living in this world and growing old can steal from you. Isn't it? What was it that you had when you were younger? That experience and monotony and survival has caused you to compromise. What is that thing? What is it that the process of growing it into an adult, yeah, an adult, right, and learning how to survive in our world? has caused you to forget something that you knew when you were a child and now have forgotten. What is it, right? There's something that Jesus is trying to point out to us that is essential for knowing and loving him. And he's saying kids have it and adults don't seem to. And if you don't turn and become like them again, you will not get in the kingdom. These are hard words, y'all. So we got to sit with this. It's like in the movie Hook when grown-up <laughs> Peter Pan, played by Robin Williams, has amnesia and can't remember that he was Peter Pan and can't remember what it was like to be a child. And Wendy looks straight at him and she says, the stories are true, Peter. You've just forgotten. And of course, the movie's about him remembering. What is it that Jesus wants us to remember about being a child that we have forfeit in the process of growing old, right? There's a value and a characteristics, a characteristic that you have let go of by the mere process of growing in this world. Matthew 18 says this, 
At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a a child, you will never enter the kingdom. And in this next verse, he says, whoever humbles himself, so he gives us some clarification, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So according to Jesus, one of the main things that children have that adults lose is a kind of humility. So for the rest of our time today, it won't be long, we're just going to explore what then is the quality of that humility. What is the humility, what is the kind of humility that children have that adults don't, right? Um, what are the manifested characteristics of the humility of children? Okay, so, so let's just chat about humility for a second, okay? You know, we're talking about a lot today. Does it mean that you are self-debasing and have a low opinion of yourself? When someone says you did a good job, you say, no, I'm trash. No, that's just inverted pride, revealing itself in insecurity. So what's the kind of humility that Jesus maybe is talking about? Well, Keller notes this. Tim Keller notes this. He says, have you ever held a little baby, like little, little baby, like weeks, months old? You ever held a little baby like that? And he points out that those little guys, little, little fellas, are totally and completely vulnerable in your arms, aren't they? They are completely at the mercy of you as an adult. They are 100% powerless, aren't they? You're literally holding their whole existence in your arms. There is a complete and 100% vulnerability and inaccessibleness that children have that I think God is saying you must have if you're going to be a Christian. A position that realizes that we don't have the ability to hide And that our strength is nothing compared to his. And this vulnerability that children have, young babies, little little guys, right, stems from their helplessness meeting our faithfulness, doesn't it? Right? They're completely vulnerable in our arms. And it stems from their helplessness meeting our faithfulness. Or if we put it in God's terms, right, our helplessness meeting the faithfulness of God to hold us and love us well, which results in another kind of humility I think we're talking about, which is total and complete trust. I would argue that one of the things about kids that they have is a total incomplete. Children seem to live out of this reality that things will be provided, don't they? Because, because of their experience with mom and dad, most, most children, praise the Lord, live with some sort of guardian, right, who is looking at, that's not always the case, but most children live with some sort of guardian who's looking out for them, and generally speaking, right, when when parents are aligning their hearts with what God calls us to, children are provided for, aren't they? And the result of that is a carefreeness and often a disinterest in how things are practically provided, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's just magic, right? My kids have no clue the details of how their life is actually sustained, right? No clue how things happen. But they are comfortable, they are safe. They are fed. How does it happen? They don't know. Do they understand the structures that protect them from violent men? No. They don't understand that. 
for all the things that have to happen in our household for them to grow, to be transported, right? To purchase food for eating. No clue how that stuff works, right? My seven-year-old has never asked me, what's the structure and implementation of civil law? Right? No, they don't even care. All they know is they're safe, right? For children, the house is warm when it's cold and it's cool when it's hot. No clue how that happens. My kid's not going to replace my HVAC system when it goes down. No clue. The trash just magically disappears, right? They don't know where it goes, right? Dinner just magically appears on the table. Their clothes just magically appear and it's clean, right? They're just provided for, right? I can't, you know, dinner. Dinner's a big thing at our house, right? I can't see how many times I get home and, like, I can see my wife's eye twitching, you know? I can tell it's been a day. I was going to be like, make your own dinner. I'm taking your mom out. Can't do it. We're just not there yet. They, we're just, they can't do it, right? Can Kids tend to live out of a reliable knowledge that things will be provided for them. When we receive the provisions of God, like he longs for us to receive him, it doesn't create lazy recklessness. What it does do is create a firewall against anxiety. Right? An impenetrable fortress that anxiety cannot assail because God's got me. Hmm? He's for me. Who can be? Who who believes this junk, huh? Any of y'all believe this stuff? Seriously. Like, who believes this? What does this do in your heart and mind when you believe that God has you? He's going to provide for you. Tell me that doesn't have effects and play itself out. You're running around like with anxiety over, dying from anxiety in your heart and life. Because you don't believe that God has you. He's going to provide for you. Children don't have an issue believing that because from their experience, from their growing up, from their parents loving them, they just believe it's going to happen. I would think, maybe suggest, maybe argue that this might be one of the things God is saying. If you don't become like this, you're not going to get in. If we don't have a functioning reality, a functioning knowledge of the provisions of God over and for our well-being, he's saying, you're not going to get in. You're not going to be able to enter into that rest. You're not going to be be able to enter into that peace because the whole world is on your shoulders and you've got to establish it yourself. No one's looking out for you. You've got to look out for you. Think of the consequences that has in our lives. Think of all of the outcomes we manipulate and manage other people because no one's looking out for me. I've got to look out for me. I've got to make this happen. We become vindictive and cruel and harsh and controlling. Something about children that Jesus is saying, if you don't become like this, you're not going to get in. You're not going to experience what I have for you. And I think it is, at least in some ways, a knowledge, a deep and profound trust. Like none of you, when you walked in this room, at least I didn't see it, assessed the structural integrity of the chair you're sitting in. I don't think any of you came in and said, is this going to... I don't know, what's the pound per whatever on that metal, whatever, an architect can say more about this, right? No, you just, you sat down with unthinking confidence. You know what that's called? Faith. (laughs) You have faith in the chair. And I think what God is trying to tell us today is this kind of unthink, peace, restful, relaxation back into his arms is an essential ingredient to be a Christian. And if you don't have that, you will not know his peace. You will not know his joy, right? He is 
holding me, sustain, protecting me from the curses of spiritual darkness. Hmm? You know, live out of that. What does that create? Restful trust, man. Joyful confidence, knowing God will prove himself good and he is true to his word, even when we can't understand or explain everything in the moment, right? When the humility of acknowledging your own helplessness meets the trust in the faithfulness of God, it creates childlike, easy access to joy. Are we logically, am I, am I talking here? Am I communicating clearly? Is that, am I putting, am I connecting the dots, right? It makes joy accessible again. Hmm? Makes joy accessible again. Some of us feel barred out of joy. It creates a kind of humility that children have that I argue is non-negotiable for saving faith. And it's only when we adopt this character so that we will ever be able to agree with David when he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. See, for so many Christians, that kind of restful, peaceful language is la la na na. Can you know that? I should, I, should, I should write these words out before I just try to come up with it. It's just nonsense, right? Ambient nothingness, right? It's just goo goo gaga, fairy tales, Peter Pan, right? The Lord provides for me, makes me lie down in green water. I can't relate to that at all. And what I'm telling you is because you, you, you don't have this kind of unfit, trustful, restful confidence in the provisions of God. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, that comfort me. Surely goodness and mercy shall flow with me. Flow, follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, right? See, some of that language is so unrelatable to us, and I think we're getting at the root of maybe why, right? When my helplessness meets my need for a shepherd, right, trusts in the Lord, we can rest in that kind of thing. The other thing I want to point out to you is this. Children have, so that was the first one, children have a humility of innocence. Now, well, now we got we to chat about this. What do I mean by innocence? Not, not that they are blameless and sinless. You got kids, you know, I ain't true, <laughs> all right? right? However, there is an innocence in children that we all know about and that everyone can relate to and poets have written about and stories have been told about, right? There's an innocence in children in that they are inexperienced. They're inexperienced, aren't they? Now, what, do I, what do I mean by that? Well, they've not been trained in the ways of brokenness yet. They've not been hardened by experience and exhaustion like we have, right? There is a purity and an innocence in this way, right? They've not walked out their own brokenness in all of the ways that you and I have. They're broken, but they haven't walked it out in experience yet. And so what that means is that children are ignorant and inexperienced, not, not just in life, but in evil. They're inexperienced in evil. They get a little sinner's heart, but they've not walked it out, right? Jesus isn't saying you need to be lacking and untrained and ignorant and, ex and inexperienced in life. He's saying you need to be lacking, untrained, 
ignorance and inexperienced and evil. That's what he's saying. And for kids, that general inexperience gives them a sense of humble wonder and hope. And the ability children have. Man, if you haven't heard anything, if everything I've said so far has just been nonsense, I want you to hear this. Children have the ability to delight in simple joys. Do they not? I... I was texting some buddies this week, and they were like, Valentine's is a made-up holiday. And I was like, yeah, I get you, right? Like, I'm over it. Been there, done that. I took my wife out. Don't give me, I took my wife out, right? I didn't get her anything. I took her out, right? We're just, I'm just over Valentine's, right? My daughter ran in today and drew this note for me. I love you. Happy Valentine's Day. Rainbow Rocket. Because she's not over it. She still has the ability to delight in simple things. I mean, somewhat trivial things, right? Things that we would say, that's, that's dumb. <laughs> I don't do that. And she has the ability to still delight in it, right? G.K. Chesterton points this out. Because children... I didn't plan this, by the way. She just came in, and I was like, oh, look at that. That's an example. <laughs> GK, I wasn't like, Addie, draw me a picture. I need you to know. I'm, just, I'm telling you, she, drew, she, she just came in. She was like, yeah, yeah. GK Chesterton points this out. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately and has never grown tired of delighting and making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. God, Chesterton will get you. Maybe Jesus is saying to us, you have lost the ability of anticipating the joy of sunrise. Maybe he's saying, you've lost the ability as a crusty, calloused old adult to just delight in simple creation. Maybe you've quit singing with the sunset, huh? Maybe you've quit marveling at the stars. You don't take slow walks anymore and linger when you see something beautiful. Maybe you're too busy to notice and delight in the beauty of creation anymore. Adult anxieties and responsibility has crowded it out. You've quit saying, do it again, out of joy and delight when it comes to life. And now only no drudgery and despair and fatigue. 
Because as Chesterton has said, you've grown older than your father, right? Your soul no longer, perhaps, allows beauty to awe you into silence. Hmm. Seen it before. You've been there, you've done that. And you honestly can't remember why you're so cynical. You honestly can't remember when this cynicism took such deep root in you and robbed you of the simple delights of life. Hmm? No one is here. No one here is immune from this process. Every single one of us have made choices, have taken positions, have clung to this or that that slowly and imperceptibly robbed us of childlikeness. See, it's often not lost in one event, although dramatic events can do that, God have mercy. For most people, it's slow and almost an imperceptible crushing of dreams and hopes and joys. And we resign to the reality that life is hard and cruel and begin living accordingly. And instead of submitting to how God has made things, we resign to the way things are in a broken world. And we too lie. We too blur the lines of truth because it's just what you have to do to make it. We chatting? How does it happen? Huh? How does the slow, imperceptible process of growing old rob us of what Jesus is getting at? Well, it comes down to, when it comes down to it, for most of us, it happens when we become convinced that to survive, we must violate our conscience. The businessman who obscure, obscures the truth to make his quota says, it's just business. It's how we make things work. It's the way the world works. It's not personal. We've probably said it ourselves. You need to toughen up if you're going to get along in life. Look at me. It may be a dog-eat-dog world, but does that mean we have to become cannibals ourselves? Does that mean we have to be hardened and biting and violent to our neighbor? Paranoid, right? When we allow our hearts to grow old and hard and calloused and ourselves adopt worldly survivalist methods, we show that what we really believe is blessed are the ruthless and blessed are the cutthroat, for theirs is the reward. Blessed are the hardened and the shrewd, for theirs is the dividends. Blessed are those who look out for number one, right? The reality is all of us have in one way or another lost our childlikeness by choices we knew weren't ideal, but we made them nonetheless. We lied. We misled, we blurred the truth, we treated with contempt and belittled, we manipulated to gain control of the situation, and one way or another we've done this, right? And all, all of these decisions are, of course, justified. We had to lie, right? We had to belittle them to show our disapproval, right? We had to get control for the right outcome in this particular situation, right? We had to take care of ourselves because no one else was. We couldn't trust the Lord of the situation like this, be reasonable, right? We had to take the wheel, just for a second, and then here you go, Jesus, have the wheel again. We just had to, I just had to navigate around this really tricky bend that I didn't think you could really navigate for me, right? And we give it right back, right? Because then, you know, are we, am I, are we still with each? Okay. The reality is we've blown it, right? And whether we can admit it or not, we've lost childlikeness. And what the gospel comes to us in our adultness, right, 
it says, there is one who has power to reverse the clock and to make us whiter than snow and innocent when it comes to evil again. There is one who has the power and the will, if we will let him, turn us back to children again to restore joy, wonder, singing, and dancing known to children that we've forgotten how to do. His name's Jesus, right? I'm gonna end today with this one story from a C.S. Lewis book. In the voyage of the Don Treader, uh, there is a character called Eustace Clarence Scrub. And he almost deserved it. The best line in the whole book, right? Isn't that opening? Isn't that how it opens? Yeah, there once was a boy whose name was Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it, right? And he is the kind, if you saw the Disney thing, they did a good, they did a good job casting him because you just want to punch that kid in the face, right? You're like, you are so annoying, right? Just, ugh, right? He's arrogant, he's loud, he's self-centered, right? And in the book, they become stranded on an island and Eustace finds a dragon lair. And being greedy for the treasure, he, he uh, puts on a gold bracelet around his arm and falls asleep on top of uh, the, the gold, the treasure. And when he wakes up, he had been turned into a dragon. And Lewis writes, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. But as he grew and became a dragon, the bracelet remained the same size and it hurt him horribly. And soon, Eustace becomes desperately afraid that he will be a dragon and in pain for the rest of his life. And one night, Aslan, who is the Christ figure, comes to him. And Aslan leads him to a mountain. And the mountain has a large fountain on the top. I'm just going to let Lewis tell us because he can do it better. I was going to paraphrase it, but come on, you're going to, it's worth it. All right, here we go. And on the top of the mountain, there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it, there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see water bubbling up from the bottom of it, but it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. And the water was as clear as anything. I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me, you must undress first. I was going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things. And snakes cast their skins. Oh, of course, I thought. That's what he means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And when I scratched a bit deeper, instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or if I was a banana. In a minute two, uh, or a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was, mo it was the most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the, uh, the well for my bath, but as soon as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that there was all hard and rough and wrinkled, scaly skin, just as it was before. And I said, oh, oh, that's right. Uh, I, it means I only have another smaller suit underneath the first one. I've got to get out of this one too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and I stepped out, and it left it there lying next to the other one and went down for the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my legs, so I scratched away for the third time, got off a third skin, and just like the other two stepped out of it, but as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws. 
I can tell you. But I was pretty well near desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when we began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the horrible stuff peeled off, you know? Have you ever picked a scab at a sore place? It hurts like a billy, but it's much fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only it hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was tender underneath. It smarted like anything I'd ever felt. And then he threw me into the water, and that hurt too. After that, I got that wrong, so I just made it. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why I'd been turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply a phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know there's no muscle and they're pretty, you know, moldy compared to Caspian's, but it was great to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you with his paws? Well, I don't remember that bit exactly or how he did it or how I got these new clothes, but, on, but somehow uh, I'm here and I'm back, which makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there are the clothes for the one thing, and, well, you've been undragoned for the other. What do you think it was then, asked Edmund, asked Eustace. I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. If we will be vulnerable with the Son of God, if we will act in trust and vulnerability and humility, He can restore things that we have lost by our own volition. Things that we have clutched to our chest that we know make for our death and that have turned us into creatures less like God. He can and will take from and redeem those areas of our life. Do we have faith like this, y'all? Do we have faith to believe that Jesus has this kind of power? That he can turn back time, make us innocent again when it comes to evil? He can make us into this kind of, the joy can be accessible again only when we will lay down and allow ourselves to be vulnerable. If we hide and insist that in our own strength and intellect and experience, we can guide ourselves then we will never know the kind of provisions and guidance and comfort that comes when we trust and have the humility of a child, right? Our pride will stop us from voicing our true helplessness, right, and meeting the faithfulness of God. Jesus says to us, unless we become like a child, we will never enter the kingdom and stands ready through the cross to make us into the kind of people who would feel at home in his kingdom. Amen. Let's stand and pray.
I think for many of us, um, this past year has been particularly difficult for a variety of reasons. Uh, maybe the past five years or 10 years, as long as you can remember, it's just been difficult. And you feel very much locked outside of the joy and rest and peace that you read in scripture. You feel barred outside of that experience. Can I just say to you today that the, the Lord wants to meet you where you are at, even now, and wants to do in you things that you cannot do yourself. Let's pray. Jesus.